All right. <clears throat> I'm going to read the land acknowledgement. We meet today in the community of Iowa City, which now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication. The area of Iowa City was within the homelands of the Iowa, Meskwaki, and Sauk. And because history is complex and time goes far back beyond memory, we also acknowledge the ancient connections of many other indigenous peoples here. The history of broken treaties and forced removal that dispossess indigenous peoples of their homelands was and is an act of colonization and genocide that we cannot erase. We implore the Iowa City community to commit to understanding and addressing these injustices as we work toward equity, restoration, and reparations. We can't hear anything on the Zoom. Are you muted on did you not hear me at all? I heard you, but when you mute yourself, I can't hear anything. Okay. There. Um, okay, so next is the approval of the meeting minutes from December 16th. Um, is there anything that anyone wants to update or change on those meeting minutes? So good. Um, then I'm going to make a motion uh, uh, to approve the meeting minutes. Rivera, second. Uh, Commissioner Yes. Commissioner Miller? Yes. Commissioner Gaffer? Yes. Commissioner Johnson? Yes. Commissioner Rivera? Yes. And Commissioner Miller? Yes. Thank you. Perfect. Um, next up, we have um, public comment of items not on the agenda. Uh, TRC members shall not engage in discussion with the public concerning said items. Um, we're going to start with members of the public that are on via Zoom. Um, if you want to raise your hand, if you have a public comment, um, and we'll call on you. Does anyone here have want to make a public comment? All right. Um, so let's move on to agenda item number six, which is correspondence. Um, and I see that um, Eduardo Gonzalez is on this um, Zoom. And uh, the correspondence that um, I have on here that I included um, is something that him and Think Peace. Uh, wanted to invite us to, and I'm going to give you the floor to just talk about that really quick. Thank you so much. Thank you to all the members. Hey, Eduardo, you're you're a little fuzzy. Let me take off this. Um... All right. How about now? Perfect. Excellent. So thank you so much, Commissioner Ali. I'm very glad to participate in this meeting. I'm happy to see Ron Wakabayashi here. Um, I hope I can uh, hear his presentation, which I'm sure will be incredibly enriching for all of us. Um, I just have a, um, a very brief um, uh, comment and, and proposal. As um, you know, of course, the Commission is going to be looking for facilitation of some of its key activities in the next few weeks. Um, 
As you know, I was very happy to support the proposal by Kearns and West a few months ago. And now that there will be, sorry, we have somebody here. Now that there will be um, additional proposals, uh, we in Think Peace, a uh, small um, outlet of colleagues with experience in truth commissions would like to uh, present a small proposal to cover some of the aspects that the commission is going to work on. Namely, uh, we would like to make a few proposals on facilitation of the public activities of the commission. Uh, we know that the commission has been thinking hard about how to organize public hearings, how to organize the public outreach of the commission, and we would probably uh, be well positioned to share some of our experiences and to put the commission in touch with members of other previous truth commissions that have done this already. In my case, uh, that was precisely my role in the Peruvian Truth Commission, the organization of the public hearings. And in the years that intervene, I have been able to work with a few truth commissions on that. That would be complementary and not competing with what other facilitators are going to propose. Um, I know that Kernsan West is going to um, hopefully also present a proposal. They have a dearth of experience and their role will be much welcome. Um, hopefully also there will be Iowa City-based uh, practitioners who will uh, make proposals. And I really hope that um, the different uh, groups and experts and, and friends and supporters who will present proposals will be able to work together. I think that our um, expertise is complementary to each other's. And, and I think that the commission really needs um, a lot of support from different corners. And then do you want to talk about this transitional justice intensive course? That's correct. So another thing that I wanted to propose is uh, we in Think Peace together with the Truth Telling Project, uh, which is led by Dave Ragland, as you know, will uh, offer starting on 20th of March, an intensive course on transitional justice and truth commissions. This is going to be a six week course uh, starting on the 20th of March, going through end of April. And uh, we are going to discuss all the different aspects of this that we call truth commissions and transitional justice, meaning the importance of dealing with the past, the importance of dealing with um, human rights violations, uh, the importance of a complementary approach between truth seeking and reparation, uh, the significance of this effort of looking into the past for racial justice, and uh, different elements on how to ensure that the truth, reconciliation, reparation, and justice process is successful. So um, we would be very happy to invite all the members of the Truth Commission and members of the Iowa City community to participate. Yes, you want to participate too. Yes, so um, yeah, that is, that is uh, what we would like to do. And uh, as you can see, I have very um, urgent uh, requests here. So probably I will not be able to stay longer in the meeting, but uh, I just wanted to make sure that our offer uh, was heard by the members of the commission. Thank you so much, Eduardo and Baby. Um, we appreciate your time. Um, and with that, I think that um, this is a nice little transition into 
uh, Ron Wakabayashi. Um, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and then um, we can uh, start listening to your presentation. Okay. Uh, if, uh, by way of introduction, I think I'm going to start with, I, I, I'm, I'm one of Amel's favorite people, uh, which, which kind of, I think gives me standing. Um, but seriously, you know, like I, I'm associated current, I'm retired from the Department of Justice Community Relations Service, where I was the Western Regional Director uh, for some 20 years. And uh, currently, you know, I, I'm working with the uh, Ohio State folks with, on the Divided uh, Communities Project. Um, probably most relevant to um, this presentation is that, you know, I was the National Director of the Japanese American Citizens League during the time period where the organization had as its principal mission um, you know, the conduct of legislation for the federal government that called for, you know, a formal apology uh, from the federal government and compensation uh, for the wartime internment of, uh, wartime incarceration of Americans of Japanese ancestry, which included, uh, you know, most of my family. I, I, was, I was born um, while the camps were in operation, and technically I was in the custody of federal government and excluded from the West Coast, but I, I did not reside in one of the concentration camps. Um, but I did have the role of being the national director of the organization that played a principal role in probably was, you know, um, America's um, prime example of a truth and reconciliation process. So let me start that off by, by sharing a little bit different kind of story that's, that's somehow related. Um, you know, back in that same time period in the 1980s, it was a period where the Japanese economy was growing and there was a great backlash against Japan and that resulted in, in anti-Asian kinds of, of uh, actions taking place throughout the country. And you know, related to that, the, the uh, president of Sony um, took the documentary Eyes on the Prize on the American Civil Rights Movement and had a Japanese language version created and had it distributed to all the high schools and junior high schools um, in Japan. And along with that, they had an essay contest to ask students to write on their observations of looking at, you know, the American Civil Rights Movement. So I want to just kind of you know, I was one of the readers in that, and it was one essay in, in particular that struck me. So I want to just kind of pose a, a question to everyone thinking about that. The, the essay that I'm thinking about was, was written by an eighth grade um, Japanese girl who lived in rural Japan. Um, you know, it's a very simple kind of living, you know, as farmers. Uh, she had not in her life had any contact with an African-American person. So her only exposure was looking at this documentary on, on the civil rights movement, Eyes on the Prize. And I want you just for a second to imagine what her first opening sentence of the paragraph of her, of her essay is. So just give that a quick thought. If you were looking at Eyes on the Prize, what would be your opening sentence? Her opening sentence was, I have never seen people who love their country so much. I've never seen people who love their country so much. So that documents the civil rights struggle. You know, and I, I've had the personal uh, privilege of, of actually meeting and knowing people like C.T. Vivian, 
you know, who is who is one of um, King's, you know, closest lieutenants, who Jim Clark punched just before the crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And if you ever met, you know, um, C.T. Vivian passed away last year. But if you ever met the man, you know, you're, you feel like you're in the presence of a saint. It's just kind of this this gentle man who who, who pushed forward. And I just wanted to begin with sharing that story because I think that the, the journey that people are taking part on has some parallels to that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, when when Japanese Americans took up the Jap the uh, the what we called redress in that struggle. You know, it started when I was near Amel's age. You know, I'm retired now, so it's a long time ago. <coughs> and so in that time period, the idea of, of pushing <coughs> for reparations was a radical and outlier idea that the mainstream, you know, public and the mainstream of the Japanese American community, you know, um, really tried to shut us up. And the Japanese American Citizens League that I became the director of <coughs> was one of those mainstream organizations. The feedback was don't rock the boat. You know, like, you know, that, that's, that's, that happened, it's over. We've got to make our, <coughs> our place in the, in the country. Uh, and, and it's better to let it lie. Well, you know, it turns out we didn't let it lie, but we, did, we also didn't know very much about what took place? You know, we made the discovery actually through the Black Civil Rights Movement uh, by asking the question, "Well, what about us? You know, what was our place? What was our history?" And when we poured into it, there were only two books at the time on on the incarceration, um, and one was 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 just just real um, difficult reading, um, and the other was a popular history, but didn't have much depth to it. You know, you've got a general idea. If you can imagine, for for my generation, third generation growing up, uh, our experience with the camps is that we grew up post-war after the camps. And as our families are remaking their lives, you know, um, you know, where they run into friends and they introduce you and they say, this is Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. They lived on this block in camp. And the concept of camp for us was summer camp. It must have been something that they all enjoyed together. It was not a con concept of a concentration camp. So they didn't talk about it and we grew up not knowing about it. So we, when we started learning about it, it was, it was something that we had very little information about it. Now recall that during that time period, I said that, you know, we started doing this like when I was a male's age. So like the, when the civil rights movement was taking place, you know, what, what it influenced us, us in the sense that, you know, like, my lens in terms of how I view social justice came out of like the work we did in the Vietnam War and, you know, in the civil rights movement. So when we looked at our own parents and our parents' generation, and we looked at uh, people, you know, going into the camps, the initial position of Japanese American younger people, third generation, was a sense of shame about their parents. Why didn't they stand up? Why didn't they fight back? Why did they acquiesce? Why were they quiet? In fact, at the time period that the redress movement you know, reaches Congress, there is a book written by Japanese American journalists and the title of the book is Nisei, Nisei meaning second generation, the quiet American. 
And the third American took real umbrage at the title. You know, we don't want to be known as quiet Americans. We want to know, be known differently. But we didn't know any different in the story. Now, I want to give that kind of backdrop. So, I, you know, that's the backdrop. You know, we have a generational split in the community. You know, the, the, the third generation feel, you know, quite either both ignorant and in some cases very ashamed that they think their parents did not stand up. And they let, you know, things happen to their their first generation parents who were declared enemy aliens and I could not have standing. So, you know, the average age of the second generation when they were put into camps was 18 years old. And they became the spokespeople from the community because the first generation, their parents had no legal standing because they were in quotes, enemy aliens. So the process goes forward. You know, I get recruited to do this job with the Japanese American Citizens League. And we met with the congressional members of Congress. And for fortuitously, we had, you know, uh, five members of Congress that were Japanese American, just kind of a, uh, an unusual situation when you think about the percentage of Japanese Americans in, in the 1980 census, the total Asian population, not just Japanese, total Asian population was only 1.5% of the country. We were so small that, you know, the the conventional wisdom is you don't have a chance to get this kind of legislation. And in fact, there's only one member of Congress who was there during the time of the internment. No one knows about what happened. And meeting with, with the, the Japanese Americans, of, members of Congress, privately, what they said to us is like, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance for any legislation. You know, this, you know, you, there's not like the political power, there's not the political will, there's not the documentation, it doesn't exist, you can't do it. And, you know, at the same time, the third generation felt quite strongly about like carrying this forward. And so, well, we're going to continue it forward. And even if we, we, you know, might fail, that we may not get successful legislation. What we did understand is that we had a powerful opportunity to um, have a, a, a remarkable public education campaign. Because at that time frame, and I would, I would kind of present for now that most of the people who hear the story of the internment, you know, because it's been, it's been over 30 years since, you know, the, the redress bill passed, don't know what happened during the Second World War to Japanese Americans, only in a very vague sense. So, so let me recount to you, like, when... The Japanese American Citizens League took, took it up, and that's a mainstream organization in the community. It's phase one. And I, I just want to point that phase out to everyone, because I think there's a parallel to what people are going through now. And in that first phase, the, uh, you know, I, I compare it to brainstorming. When we talked about redress, which is a word that means the same as reparations, when we talked about that, there were you know, you know, you know, let a hundred flowers, you know, a thousand flowers bloom. There were, there were thousands of ideas of what should be redress. And, and, and given that, um, you know, you know, human nature, what it is, you know, you know, testosterone and ego and everything else becomes involved. And it was a very divisive period in the community. We couldn't agree. And that eventually kind of <clears throat> shakes out and then to a cottage industry level where there are about three different approaches that are talked about. One is, you know, uh, a process of a direct litigation, a class action suit. Another, you know, is to go in straight with, a, with a, a bill in Congress saying these are the reparations that we demand. Uh, 
And the third was one that was called for a commission. And it was the most unpopular of the choices overall in the community. There was no group that, that, that stood up and said, we, we propose to support the commission approach as you know, our primary strategy. Everyone was opposed to it. So I want to point that out to you as well, that in the, in the very beginning, the commission idea was, was, was rejected because people thought it was indirect, that it was, it was not going directly to the question and, and getting a response to what had taken place. What we didn't understand is that the commission process, and the commission process initially was designed to have only subject matter experts uh, be the primary people testimony so they can capture and create, you know, a historical record of what took place. But, you know, the community push on it is like, no, we would want the people in our community to tell their stories about what the internment experience was, what was it was like to be uprooted from their homes, taken to barren, you know, um, deserts, put in barracks, and, there, and having to live there for three years, not knowing what the outcome of their lives would be from then on. So in, in going through that, 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 that process of hearings, our discovery was that the, the generation that went through the experience didn't want to recall it. They didn't want to testify. They didn't want us to bring the subject matter up. And I did the thing with, you know, I had, I had about 30 chapters in the Bay Area. And I got the chapter presidents, people who are used to speaking in front of the public, of people who are leadership leaders in their own communities, said, would you guys be willing to try this? We'll do a, a, a dry run, take a five-minute vignette about the camp experience. I'm going to get some of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, some judges, and some authority figure types to play commissioners. And would you guys, like, just do a walkthrough, just see what because we hadn't experienced what the commission was like. First guy gets up and just a few lines into his testimony, he couldn't continue. And the second guy, and these are all men, uh, community's fairly chauvinist, he couldn't finish. And the third couldn't finish. And the fourth and the fifth. And 30 men that day couldn't complete a five-minute practice testimony. And it scared me. I said, what, what, what's going on here? Yeah, I, I know these people. That, you know, they're not afraid of speaking in public. But when we, talk, when we asked them to talk five minutes on the camp experience, none of them could finish. So we, know, we, we knew we hit something that we need to be, needed to be thoughtful about, that there was some deeper pain in, in the experience that, that they went through that we didn't understand, we meaning the younger generation that was pushing all this. You know, as, as we went through this, you know, the process still went forward and many groups work with the community to help them prepare testimony. And that was the process. And I wanna I want underscore this, when you think about commission testimony, this is the storytelling, the, the public engagement phase of it. When that was taking place, you know, there were seven, some 750 people that testified at 10 hearings around the country. But beyond that, there was testimony going on every Sunday after temple and after church. There was testimony going on at the dinner table. You know, mom, dad, what did you do? What happened to grandma and grandpa? 
oh, I heard this story. Or remember Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so that you introduced us to that were on this block, what happened? What was it like to be in camp? And, and through that process, it was a discovery of, of like the experience of what the whole community went through. Not kind of just a snapshot of one or two people, but with the whole community. And some of the things that were, were found in there was, well, one of the things was that you know, there, were, there were veterans. And if you looked at the Japanese American members of Congress, the two most senior members were Senator Danny Noe and Senator Spark Matsunaga. Both of those guys served in the 442nd. Now, the 442nd initially was suggested by Japanese American community, by the Nisei, as saying, can we have a, a you know, because they wouldn't let them in the service because we were, we were not to be trusted. They suggested that we have a segregated, you know, battalion composed only of Japanese Americans. And they further suggested that there would be a suicide battalion to prove their loyalty. They went on to win presidential, seven presidential citations. No other unit of that size in time of service has, has ever had seven unit citations. And if you go through the readings of them, it's really quite remarkable. And remember, I came through an anti-war period. I'm not particularly fond of military stories and, 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 and those kind of things. But I found their stories really quite remarkable. And when I read their mail, you know, that they sent to their girlfriends and wives, you know, they would write the regular kind of, uh, of mushy romantic stuff. But they would also write about, okay, we know we have to be there and we have to be, you know, a major piece of showing our loyalty because that's part of the case we have to make. So in, in the World War II, if a unit took 50% casualty, it was retired. The 442nd took 350% casualty, meaning that the total unit had to be replaced three and a half times. Three and a half times, they were completely wiped out. And that's a story we didn't know. And all of a sudden, as we knew that story, and we heard that story, you know what happened? The community that felt ashamed of its elders had, a, had elders that they were proud of. And if you listen to the testimony of the commissioners, of the, of the people testifying, the young people testifying at the beginning of the commission hearings, they literally said how they were ashamed of the community response. By the end of those hearings, the, 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 the voice of the third generation was talking about, we deeply appreciate what the second generation did. And we're so appreciative of it. And we're so glad that we had a chance to learn what took place and understand it, you know, in a way we, we did not, and we're not able to understand it before. You know, you know, when I when I left the JCL, they let me do kind of a, a victory lap with the chapters and go speak for them. And and you know, one of the things that I did was talk to them about and ask them about, look, we got redress. You know, it's 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 not a huge amount of money, but twenty thousand dollars was enough to be significant where it wasn't insulting. It 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 felt to the most of the community sufficient to be a serious statement on the start of, on, a, on the part of the government and in fact it's no nowhere near what what the actual cost of, of three four years of incarceration would represent but it it, it it symbolized enough seriousness that the community said you know it's enough 
But when, when you talk to the, the folks and say, what was the most important thing about the redress effort? You know, was it the money? And, you know, like I went around literally asking people, what are you going to do with it? And they would say, I'm going to take a trip to Japan. Oh, I'm going to pay for some of my, my grandchildren's education. Oh, I'm going to donate it to the museum so they can capture the history. Or I'm going to do this and do that. Actually, the best response I heard was an, an, uh, an elderly woman, dark-skinned, you know, very leathery. Um, she came up to me in a crowd of people to say thank you. And I said, Obasan, you know, uh, Grandma, what are you going to do? And she just looked up at me. And she pointed to her mouth and she said, I get teeth. I get teeth. And I said, you know, that's... That's the best one I've heard so far. But really, the story that I'm trying to capture here is that, you know, for the second generation, if you can imagine going through being incarcerated, and not just incarcerated, they didn't know what was going to happen. There were people who believed that they were going to be executed in camps. Yeah, I don't know what it's like to feel that you're going to be executed. I just have to imagine that it's terrorizing. You know, in the camps, remember I said the 442nd took 350% casualty. When there was a mail call, you know, mothers did not go out to get the mail. Because on one hand, they wanted to get the mail, you know, from their sons, in, you know, in the battlefront. On the other hand, they were just terrified that it was a message that they were a gold star mother, that, you know, their son was killed. And they lived like that for three years. I don't understand that kind of terror. And I also know that it's not the worst terror that human beings have experienced. But this is the experience of my community. But what they got back at the end, at the very end, the second generation to their, to the second, you know, a third generation to the second generation, the message is, we're sorry, we were wrong. We appreciate what you folks did. We appreciate the contributions you made, the valor, all of the stuff. We didn't understand. We apologize and we thank you. And for the second generation, like for those, you know, like just during that redress time period, that's when I became a father. And, you know, being a father is like just remarkable. It's the only time that I know that you get to be God for a little while, you know, because you're God in their eyes. You know, I had a very prominent Japanese American, you know, you know, very wealthy, very successful. I picked him once at the airport, picked him up, we we're driving, and he looked very sad. And I said, Jim, what's wrong? He says, um, my son uh, graduated high school. I said, Jim, you're not like me. You can afford paying for college. He says, no, you know, he, you know, he, he said, he told me, dad, dad, you're, you're famous. And, and family has money and, but dad, you weren't there when I needed you. And I knew at that point, wow, that's what I never want to hear. I never want to hear that. But you know, in my community, the a whole generation, the second generation heard that. And they got back that dignity and that respect and that affection, you know, so, you know, I, my approach to, to kind of sharing with you the, the story of the Japanese-American uh, redress is really to say that 
we didn't know what the journey was going to be like. Initially, we were told we don't have a chance for a bill. Then, you know, as we discovered stuff, and there were things that none of us knew about. There was a Nisei woman who went to the National Archives every day for years, every day. And she had over 40 boxes of Xerox documents that she herself had collected to make the case. But what she did find was that literally the lies of General DeWitt, there were 10 copies of a report done on, on, on Japanese Americans and their risk as, as you know, spies, you know, uh, a military review. And that's that, those 10 copies of that report all vindicated Japanese Americans. Nine, of, nine copies of that report were never found, they were destroyed. She happened to find the one report that remained somewhere. But also that one she had, had the marginal notes that, that identified what the government was going to issue as an official line to make the military necessity, you know, <clears throat> uh, point, of, you know, point, you know, how they were going to make that point. It was the smoking gun. It was the lies. This one woman captured that. She became a heroine within the community. And she was kind of just, you know, probably as ordinary as you might imagine. So, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, we, you know, the journey's not clear. We didn't know what we, you know, where we were going. We thought that we didn't have a chance to get legislation that changed over time. The prize that we thought we got in the end, the money wasn't the prize. That was really the prize. The prize was getting the respect back. And I know that the process that's going forward now to the extent that we've had some ex experience looking at TRCs, including in Iowa, Iowa City, is that, you know, you're coming up to the phase where you're having your first, um, I think, public engagements. California is going to start theirs in February. And, and I think that's going to be a very powerful process that, that takes place in the communities. And, 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 I, and it's something that um, you should pay attention to. One, one last point I want to make is like Iowa City may feel like, you know, you're, 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 you're not big like California or you're not, you know, like not have the attention that the New York City would, would have. But, you know, in, when I talk about the redress effort for Japanese Americans, when we went in with the federal legislation, we also went in with over 100 cities that had passed statutes for wrongful termination of Japanese Americans because of race prejudice during the wartime. And it was concrete evidence that there was real support out there, not just by you know, Japanese Americans, but by the cities that we lived in. And most of those ordinances and statutes you know, were successful because there was some secretary in some office that thought it was a good idea and, and, and carried it forward. So, so Amel asked me just kind of say, and she kind of left it to me to say whatever I wanted to do. But I, I just want to just kind of capture that, that the process is, is, is the process. You'll, you'll learn and as it goes forward. If you practice due diligence, you know, and there's a lot of people supporting you. I, I know that the, the group that I'm working with at Divided Communities Project, you know, Carl Smallwood and, and, and Bill Frolic and, and Terry Murphy and, and, you know, Nancy Rogers, um, you know, um, they're, they're, they're sort of in my age cohort. 
Um, we could be retired, but this is important, you know, in so many ways. And I, I know that they contribute and I know that you contribute. Um, I don't think the path is a straight line. I think it's like we, we're going to discover more as we go through it. Um, I'm suggesting that you trust the process and you work with, with the kind of earnesty that I've seen and I like so much in the mail and other people I've met on the commission. So with that, I think that's it, what I wanted to share about our experience. If you have any sort of questions or comments, I'm happy to hear them. Thank you so much, Ron. <clears throat> that was really, really informative and super helpful and um, just a really good story overall to hear. Um, so for Q&A, we're gonna do it a little bit different. Um, if there's any members of the public who um, have questions, if you wanna raise your hand, we'll start with those. Yeah, by the way, Amalia, I have no visual. I have I can't see anybody except myself. I don't know what the tech, you know, technical problem is. So you'll have to quarterback this for me, okay? Yeah, no worries. No worries. I got your back forever. Um, it doesn't look like anyone has their hands up from uh, the participants. Um, so we'll move on to commissioners. Uh, Chastity, since you're the only one on Zoom right now. Um, you have the floor if you choose to uh, speak. I don't have anything at this time. All right. And does anyone in here have any questions? Look at that, Ron. You did so good. <laughs> no follow-up questions or anything. Well, Do we have like follow-up like uh, documentation kind of uh, Yeah, I could ask him if you want to. Um, so what Mohammed was asking, if there was any like follow-up documentation or anything that you can share um, with us. I think, I don't know if you saw it, Amel. I, I sent you like a, a, a video clip of some of the hearings. Yes, yeah. Um, I think that gives a good snapshot because it's real people talking. It's in this, uh, I think it was about 15 minutes. Yeah. I, I would suggest that to people because it, you know, I don't, I don't know that we know uh, what's going to take place as you get, you know, public engagement. You know, I, I met, um, I had breakfast with a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Dominique de Prima. Dominique had worked for Stevie Wonder's, you know, like uh, station in, in LA for 20 years doing the talk portion of it. But she's joined uh, Travis Smiley. They have an all talk, you know, uh, black radio format. And, you know, and when I was saying that the testimony doesn't just go on at, at, you know, before commissions, it happens at the kitchen table. It's mom, dad, what, you know, what are these stories? And there's more, I mean, there's, there's so many stories and it's complicated right now. You know, like um, there are questions like, you know, reparations, reparations for who? People who are direct descendants, people who are impacted in different ways. So there's, a, and you know, um, there's a lot of questions that are going to come forward. And, you know, like there's, there's, uh, you know, the conversation is important. I, I don't know if people remember back, there was, there was a, a controversy once where in Jenna, Louisiana, 
you know, there was a tree in the high school and the white students said black kids could not be in the shade of that tree. And, you know, Tom Joyner and Tavis and a bunch of people picked up that issue. And 30,000, 30,000 people hit Jenna, a town of 3,000, to protest. So I think the impact of, of like, you know, word of mouth is really very strong. One that we don't, we don't even understand the potential of it yet. So um, it's sitting out there because the, the, the once, you know, like New York is in the stage where, you know, their recommendations will automatically become ballot measures. That's going to be a buzz. California is going into their, their community engagement phase. You guys are further along, you know, and Evanston and, and other cities are further along. Um, you're at the front end of all of this. And I think it's difficult to, to see where that, that wave is going to take all of you. You know, but I mean, do understand you're in a historic place. Thank you. Um, it looks like we do have someone um, from the public who has a question or comment. Um, Sean Harmson, one of our uh, new council members. Um, and you can go ahead and speak whenever you're ready. Okay, thank you. I uh, just wanted to say, uh, first of all, thank you to our guest for coming and uh, um, sharing the story. I know some of the stuff that really, um, you know, really jumped out at me was the um, uh, the the intergenerational um, bonding that occurred um, through this process, at least that's that's you know uh, one one of the many things I got from that. Uh, I'd say I chuckled a little bit. Uh, you're so true uh, when you when you have kids and they do look up to you, um, you know, for that brief window of time. Um, you know, I, I felt that um, that's actually a kind of a really cool thing. Um, and now I have teenagers, and so <laughs> uh, now they're they're quite they're quite uh, they're quite familiar uh, and, and eager to point out the the mm -hmm. lack of omniscience. Um, um, so um, anyway, I look forward to looking at those videos. Um, and uh, again, thank you for taking time to uh, share your story um, with this commission and uh, uh, with our community. So thank you. Well, Mr. Harmon, let me comment back. You know, I, I'm, I'm uh, 78 now, so I've, I've hit that, you know, that elderly senior <laughs> elder generation. Sure. You get you get to be revered again when you get old. I mean, there's got to be some br bright side to the aging process, right? You get to be you get to be wise <laughs> again when you're old. I look forward to you're, that. You're an idiot for most of the rest of the you know, like while you're in that middle period. Yeah, and I actually remember my parents got a lot smarter when I hit 23. Isn't that true? <laughs> yeah, they, they were geniuses. I didn't know that, but I still can't convince my son yet. Fingers crossed, right? So yeah. But, but thank you again. It was really a pleasure to hear from you and what you had to say. That's all I had to say. Thank you, Sean. Uh, next, we have Megan Alter. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi, I just, I wanted to say thank you. Um, and I was struck by so many things that you said, but probably the biggest one was the way in which the work that you've done, you literally embodied it as you were telling the story um, and, and the different ways in which one has to be persistent and how the work was deliberate and intense and intensive, but it seems also like it, the way that this came to, to, 
to be so successful is because it became embedded. I was actually the part that I was most struck by was the stories are being told at, at tables and, um, you know, out while walking and, um, you know, within the community sort of in a way that became embedded um, so that it wasn't, it, it had so many prongs of um, getting truth out there. And I, I'm really struck by that. And with the work that the TRC is, is doing now um, that I know that that is, is um, both a goal and a, and a tool that I think that they've been working towards and it's been really hard with COVID, um, but I, I'm just so immensely um, grateful that you came to speak because it, it really put a, so much into context for me and I appreciate that very much. Mm. Well, thank you. Sorry, and I muted myself, so I wasn't like, um, <laughs> I mean, it's like just have stony silence after you spoke. Sorry. Okay. No worries. Uh, I think we got someone here with a question. Hi, Ron. I'm uh, Commissioner Rivera Arquevo. It's very, very nice to have you. Thank you for um, joining us, for being a resource to our chair and vice chair um, throughout this whole process and for joining us tonight to so that we can hear from you directly. Um, I think that there was a lot that I took um, from you kind of sharing those stories and that perspective. Um, one of the hardest things uh, for me, I'll, I'll speak for myself only, um, throughout this whole process was to trust the process, right? There, there's been a lot of moments that have been sort of flashpoints that um, could have at any point uh, really, uh, uh, stolen my joy for, for being a part of this. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, certainly um, there's a lot, I think, um, of challenges that lay ahead, a lot of really tough things that we'll probably encounter um, that will add on to some of the tough things that we've already experienced. But um, what I appreciated about um, uh, your sharing of your experience um, is that, you know, there will be a, a story that comes out of this that, um, that will really benefit us as long as we sort of keep the hope and, and, and keep trusting the process and, and commit to um, what it is we set out to do. Uh, so um, thank you. And thank you for sort of recognizing um, some of the feelings that we have in terms of sort of, uh, of being, you know, in a, in a historic moment and try to, trying to sort of write our own future and history at the same time. Um, but I also really appreciated um, hearing so many uh, of your experiences echoed in, in mine, um, it helps us, I think, feel less alone in this. Um, so I hope you'll continue to, to be a resource to us. I'm sure, you know, we, we still have so many questions that we don't even know need answered. Um, and so we're so lucky to um, have your wisdom uh, uh, guide well, us. I'll, yeah, well, do know that I, I, I'm, a, I'm a Mel's best friend now, so. That, that will continue. Mm -hmm. And I want to remind, like, I started with that story about the, eight, you know, the, the, the eighth grader in rural Japan when she saw the story of African-Americans in their struggle. You know, and I don't know that an American would have written that sentence. I have never seen people who love their country so much. They may have said other things, but, you know, she saw it through fresh eyes. And I wanted to share that story because there are sometimes things that we can't see because we're too close to it. There's a perspective that's missing. So when someone, you know, like halfway across the world looks back at it and, and, and says what they see, you know, it may help us have a perspective on what we're doing. 
Thank you so much, Ron. You're incredible. Um, I will be texting you and utilizing you and coming to you with all of our questions. And um, I'll get that uh, video that you had sent me forwarded to Stephanie so that she can forward it to all of the rest of the commissioners and the counselors as well. Okay, and I'll keep sending you things I run into. Good, okay. I love it. Yeah, thank you so much, Ron. Okay, everyone. And I know it's cold out there. It's what, it's zero? We don't like to talk about it, okay, Los Angeles? It was 74 here today. Oh, my gosh. Not all truths are good truths. Not all <laughs> truths are good truths. There okay. you go. I spent the morning walking on the beach. Okay. Are you done now? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you okay. so much. Okay. Bye, folks. Bye. Uh, all right. Um, so the next few things, I'm just going to try to go through them really quickly. That way, um, the commissioners who are here in person um, are able to get home at a reasonable time before it's too, too cold. Um, so um, our next agenda item is number eight, uh, protocols for 2022. Um, <clears throat> and so this was uh, something that I kind of wanted to, um, with the advice of Stephanie um, and guidance, kind of wanted to talk about um, just because I do want our meetings to kind of go smoother and flow and just so that we're not spending so much time being um, in this room having um, discussions uh, that could be had, you know, either like in private or at a later time. I just want these meetings to be kind of quick and concise and to the point and then do the work that needs to be done outside of them. Um, so with uh, 8A, it says Zoom slash in-person procedure for public comment and commissioner member comment. Um, so kind of like what we did tonight, uh, first commissioners who are on Zoom or public commentators who are on Zoom will have the chance to speak first, um, followed by those who are in person. Um, and um, I think that'll just help make things go much smoother. That way we don't have someone interrupting someone or getting confused um, on whose turn it is to be speaking. Um, so the procedure for handling commission updates, that's 8B. Um, so in this, um, my example for, or my reasoning for wanting to change the way that we do this um, is because um, kind of like when we were working on the stuff with um, organizations that we wanna partner with, um, a lot of these things or these uh, conversations, same with excluded workers funds, um, it would be really easy to just email Stephanie um, and then that way, when we're getting, we already have that update before the meeting and then any questions or um, concerns would be given at that time. So for example, um, Commissioner Harris has kind of been our go-to for excluded worker fund uh, updates. Um, and so if he would be able to, and Steph, you might have to correct me. Um, I wrote 6 p.m. on Monday, the week of our, our, our meeting. Is that okay? Monday. Okay. So, um, 
So if Commissioner Harris had updates regarding the excluded worker funds, he would need to email those updates to Stephanie um, by the Monday, the week of our um, meeting. And that's just so that we can all read it, be on the same page, and then any questions or communication during um, our meeting would just be questions that, like clarifying questions. Um, and then procedure for announcements of commissioners. Um, it's kind of like the same thing. Uh, Zoom commissioners will go first, uh, followed by commissioners in person. And then um, we want it so that you have only uh, one opportunity to talk. And that way it kind of gives you the opportunity to plan ahead and know what you're going to say um, during uh, announcements for commissioners. Does anyone have any questions? Stephanie. Perfect. Um, and then with that, I can switch to number nine, update on the facilitators. Um, so uh, Eduardo Gonzalez kind of talked a little bit about this um, earlier um, when he was talking about correspondence, um, how he was uh, working with Think Peace um, to kind of create a small proposal along with Kearns and West. Um, and it, I'm sure you guys all remember council's big thing was that they wanted someone from the community um, and not just an outside entity overseeing everything. Um, so what I'm working on doing right now um, is connecting Kearns and West and Think Peace uh, with the current local uh, facilitator proposals that we've got. Um, my plan is to have all of them present on February 3rd, our first meeting in February, um, and then we would be able to do the interview process then and vote that way by our second meeting. We will have a decision from council whether they have approved or denied um, the proposal. Um, and as far as um, details to each of the proposals, I'm not quite sure yet. It's, it's kind of changes and fluctuates. Um, Eduardo's main thing was that he wanted to just have money set aside for coming and physically being here um, or Dave Reglin to physically be here, but it doesn't seem like it's gonna be anywhere near um, the almost $200,000 mark that was before since they're kind of all collaborating and working together. Um, and so I'm helping them facilitate that communication and um, get them connected with uh, the, the local proposals. Um, and hopefully they'll be ready to present on the third. Does anyone have questions about that? Um, so just to clarify that um, what you're sort of proposing in terms of 
how we go about uh, choosing our uh, facilitator or facilitators is um, it'll be sort of Eduardo and, and working with some of the folks who um, already were a part of the Kearns and West proposal. And um, uh, so they'll kind of be a given um, as part of the package. And then um, after that, we are gonna be kind of looking at um, the proposals uh, offered by more local um, folks to us yep. who would kind of work together with Eduardo. Yeah, and so in, in my thinking of this, um, which I, I tried to think of how I could utilize a local person and an outside entity in the best way ever. Um, so, and Mohammed and I had met with Kearns and West before Christmas. And um, I think that Kearns and West is gonna be really helpful for like project planning, strategic planning, um, gathering all of the information and putting into recommendation form. Um, whereas Eduardo and Dave um, and Auntie have so much knowledge um, when it comes to the in-person events and how um, we should communicate with people telling their truths and what that is going to look like. Um, stuff that probably Kearns and West doesn't have as much knowledge in. And that's where I see them, those two pieces fitting in. And then, you know, the third local person um, would work with Kearns and West and kind of see how they, their ideas mesh and where they can find a common meeting ground. Um, and if you guys, if anyone has any questions, please don't hesitate to like text me. I can update anyone, anything on that. Um, but that is all I have for the facilitator um, update and seems like the, our February 3rd meeting will be a very exciting one. I'll just say thank you to you for um, putting uh, sort of that frame uh, together. I, I think that it's a good model for us. Um, uh, and, you know, I hope that uh, it's something that, you know, will be really actionable for, for city council and for us um, moving forward. Um, and then also, you know, thank you. He's not on anymore, but to our Eduardo for also um, really doing so much work for us um, without yeah anything um, without anything <laughs> yeah she's um, taking care of his two-year-old and is just zooming in yeah so yeah i'll we're, let him know we're, we're very lucky to have the support that we're getting yeah um okay so sounds like we are on uh agenda item number 10 uh announcements of commissioners staff um, TRC shall not engage in discussion with one another concerning said announcements. Do you have anything, Steph? Um, I just want to thank everyone. Um, it's been really um, not only available, but um, Um, anyone else? I've got one thing. Um, so with the situation that happened the last time, how we canceled our meeting, I just wanted to kind of float this idea into everyone's head, uh, something that we can think about or put on the agenda at the next meeting. Um, for inclement weather, thunderstorms, cold weather, things like that, um, if there's 
like a procedure or something we want to put into the bylaws. Uh, like if by noon, if we're not sure, like, like, I don't want you guys to be driving home if there's a severe thunderstorm warning and we're, you know, it's getting poured on. So um, just kind of keep that in mind because with winter, it gets super duper cold. And then we're going to kind of go into the springtime where it's going to start raining. And I just want to make sure that we have the best communication so that nobody's confused about whether we're having a meeting or not. Um, and that can be something that we talk about at the next meeting too, but I just wanted to plant that seed in everyone's head real quick. I'll um, say that I uh, just want to thank everyone uh, for participating from the public. Um, I, I just want to just remind people um, the importance of uh, uh, good public health practices uh, during this current Omicron surge. You know, the business of this commission is um, safety and taking care of our community. And right now, one of the best ways that we can do that is um, just to make sure that uh, we're continuing the safe practices that we've been employing throughout this entire pandemic. Um, there's, you know, been a lot of changes within um, the local hospital systems in, in responding to things. There's certainly been a lot of stretching and flexing. Um, and so, uh, yes, please just uh, you know, keep taking care of the community in whatever way that you can um, by masking up. If you haven't gotten vaccinated, feel free to email me. I'd love to chat with you about, you know, if you have more questions. And it looks like Chastity has her hand up. Um, the first thing is I have, I was not able to hear what Stephanie said at all. Um, if anyone can repeat that for me. And the second thing is, um, I just wanna say happy new year to everyone. Um, I can't, I, um, and to reiterate, I hope everyone's staying healthy and happy for the new year. So um, Stephanie was just thanking us uh, for being understanding and working together just through the technical difficulties that with everything that's happening right now and kind of trying to figure out how to make this work in the best way possible under these circumstances. Awesome, thank you, Stephanie. All right, motion to adjourn. I got one more. Oh. Uh, Catholic Worker House, uh, not this weekend, but next weekend uh look forward to uh did you guys hear that mm, kind of uh in two weeks catholic so, worker house um will be attending i boxing um, families and kids. So keep an eye out for that. If you want more information, you can reach out to Cliff directly. All right, motion to adjourn. Give me a second. Cool, sweet. Bye everyone.